0: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. There is a place the neighborhood kids only whisper about. A place that's deeply foreboding and yet strangely alluring. A place where, according to legend, something terrible and tragic happened long ago, and where, today, dark and sinister things are said to lurk in the shadows. This place can offer a chance to solve a mystery, to follow a ritual and obtain a fleeting glimpse into the world beyond, to gain rare insight into the paranormal, to face your fears of the unknown and prove your courage. But only if you're brave enough to enter. This place can be found all across Canada, indeed all across the world, and though the form of the place can vary, its function is always the same. It serves as a reminder of the dark that lurks on the edge of the light, and it provides for the surrounding community a test of bravery and a rite of passage for the youth living nearby. Rise to the challenge, follow the ritual and survive, and you will be accepted. Fail, chicken out or run away, and you become a pariah worthy of scorn. For some, this place lies in the natural landscape, a spooky stretch of forest or a forbidden plateau. For others, it's a derelict haunted house at the end of a dark street, an abandoned institution on a looming hillside, or a rickety bridge with a violent past. For those in a small region south of Lake Ontario, it's known as the Screaming Tunnel. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. Tonight's episode is about an infamous Ontario landmark, the spirit that is said to haunt it, and the story behind it all. It's an in-depth look at a modern urban legend and the way it can change over the decades, reflecting the fears and anxieties of each new generation. So get comfortable and listen well. It will be nothing short of illuminating. We've all heard this kind of story before. You hear a rumor from someone who heard it from another about some girl ten years ago who tried a forbidden ritual and had a frightening encounter at some creepy, out-of-the-way location, barely escaping with her life. The urban legend grows and transforms over time, and you hear different versions with varying degrees of intensity, both legends and first hand accounts. Some tell you in a somewhat disappointed voice that nothing happened when they went. But then you hear others who swear they saw or felt or heard something, and your interest is piqued. You decide to investigate for yourself. Heading to the tunnel, you might think you were on your way for a sunny afternoon of wine tasting or outlet shopping. Heading north from the honeymoon capital of Niagara Falls along the sprawling Queen Elizabeth Way, you'll enter the vicinity of Glendale, one of the communities that makes up the charming little town of Niagara-on-the-Lake, nicknamed the loveliest town in Canada. This is wine country. The alluvial soil, sheltered slopes, and offshore breezes of Lake Ontario and the Niagara River create the ideal terroir for aromatic, delicate varietals like Riesling, Vidal, and Pinot Noir. Some of the world's best ice wines are born and bottled right here. But you're not here for wine. You're here for spirits. Instead of turning right toward the vineyards, you turn left, past the conference resort and spa, past the outlet mall, the Lululemon, the espresso bar, the McDonald's, You drive south past Niagara College, where they run a popular teaching winery, and then alongside the lush greens of the Royal Niagara Golf Club. Eventually, you'll turn down a lonely, narrow, tree-lined road named for the Loyalist soldier who settled there after the American Revolution. After nearly four kilometers along a wooded stretch, you'll finally reach your destination. It isn't very impressive in the daylight. For all the legend and mystery that surrounds it, the Screaming Tunnel, as it has come to be known, is surprisingly small. Measuring 16 feet high and 125 feet deep, it's just about twice the length of a bowling lane. No more than 50 or 60 steps will carry you from one end to the other. It's often said to be an abandoned railway tunnel. Somehow, railways always seem to add a little bit of mystique, but it's actually just a humble limestone drainage tunnel built in the early 1900s to help drain excess water from the surrounding farms. Despite a few overly dramatic TV shows describing visitors having to hike through the woods to get there, it's located just off the well-paved Warner Road, about a 10-minute drive from world-famous Niagara Falls. The graffiti along its walls is typical of any out-of-the-way suburban spot, with the occasional edgy occult symbol thrown in for good measure. In short, the screaming tunnel is mostly forgettable, at least in daylight. At night, it's a different story. The streetlights are sparse along the access road, and the tunnel sits down a shallow slope beneath a blanket of vegetation. On a moonless night, it would be nearly impossible to see. Staring down the entrance, you're struck by the depth of its darkness. With no light source on the other side, it might as well be a thousand feet deep. And your imagination can run wild about what might be lurking in the shadows. In fact, the tunnel feels so ominous that it was used as a crime scene in the movie adaptation of Stephen King's book, The Dead Zone. Teens in and around the area have been coming here for decades drawn by a macabre urban legend and eager to test their courage by enacting a simple ritual said to provoke the spirit that haunts the grounds. Today, legend trippers from across the province and across the border come to record their midnight antics in what is claimed to be one of the most haunted places in the province. But what do they do when they get here? How does one scare up the ghost of the eerie screaming tunnel? In the grand tradition of urban legends, those details are likely best shared with a story. Dia made her way cautiously along the edge of the tunnel, doing her best to avoid the deepest parts of the massive puddle that spanned its length. She ran her hand along the slick coolness of the stone wall, letting it guide her careful steps as her eyes adjusted to the dark. She stopped when she reached the edge of the light that pooled at the mouth of the tunnel, cast by the hazy headlights of Ryan's beat-up Toyota. Past the frayed edge of light, there was 60 feet of deep and unsettling darkness. Far ahead lay the tunnel's exit, an archway of bruised evening sky. She pressed on. As her light-starved pupils swelled, Dia could finally see some details of her surroundings. The walls were covered in a jumble of graffiti. A faded orange star frowned at her from a section of wall just beyond her fingertips, its bright neon paint nearly licked clean by the damp. The puddle below now shimmered faintly, and she barely spotted an empty Cheesy's bag, crumpled and half drowned in the mud near her right shoe. In this moment of distraction, She tripped and gasped as her foot splashed in the water and slipped backward. Instinctively, she plunged her right knee downward into the puddle and both hands into the cold mud of the tunnel floor. There was a groan and then echoes of laughter behind her. Dia stood and turned. Ryan and Jazz stood at the tunnel entrance, silhouetted by the headlights of the car parked on the slope behind them. Dia raised her hands in a frustrated, questioning gesture and Ryan's voice echoed an answer. It told her to keep going. She could hear the smirk in his tone. You have to go to the middle, the voice explained. That was where she died. How did she get herself into this mess? When her friends, she used that word lightly now, had invited her to go to Niagara, this wasn't what she had in mind. Trudging through a freezing tunnel, 14 kilometers north of the falls, and now caked in mud, well, that was bad enough. But to do it on a dare, with the intention of summoning the screaming ghost of a dead girl, that was just crazy. But what could she do about it now? If she gave up, she'd be labeled a coward, too scared to face some stupid high school urban legend. Another 20 steps, and Dia was now in the center. It was darker here, damper, significantly colder, and she couldn't help but shiver as a chill crept up her spine. There was a rumbling, a small vibration somewhere in the distance. She turned and looked back. Ryan and Jazz were still by the mouth of the tunnel. Good. They were watching. She was only going to do this once, and she wanted to make absolutely sure that both could see her. More importantly... She wanted to make absolutely sure that neither could accuse her of chickening out. She glanced down and stepped to the shallowest part of the puddle, then pulled a small box of matches from her coat. The hollow rattling inside suggested six or more. She only needed one. The rumbling grew closer, and she slid the box open, removed a match, and slipped it shut. She looked up to the entrance again, but this time she couldn't see her friends, She could barely see anything. She saw the contours of the tunnel stones, the walls and ceiling shrinking toward the horizon, the soft glowing rim of the tunnel washed in the golden headlights, but there was nothing in the center of her vision, just emptiness, as if someone was standing just ahead of her, blocking her way. She thought she could hear footsteps coming toward her. She blinked hard, but the shadow remained, closer now, absorbing the last remaining threads of light. Did one of them follow her? Hey, she said, confused. What's up? A sudden, piercing shriek came in answer, and she jumped back in surprise, dropping the matches. With her back to the stone wall, Dia could feel the earth shaking around her as her heart hammered in her chest. The mournful sound of a train whistle swept through the tunnel, and the rhythmic clicking of train tracks echoed above her. She laughed and shook her head. The shriek had been the train grinding against the rails as it thundered overhead. Get a hold of yourself, she thought. She peered down the tunnel. She could see them again. Her friends were still there, this time with their heads raised, watching the train roll by. Dia sprung to her feet and returned to her place. She felt for the box of matches and found them just as the last car crossed the tunnel. She paused a moment, breathed in deeply, then called out. Ready? One of the shadows shuffled up the slope. A moment later, the headlights switched off, and she stood now in complete darkness. The signal that she should begin. Dia drew a match from the box, felt for the roughness of the striker with her thumb, and placed the match head firmly against it. This was it. She drew the match across the box. Once, twice, the third attempt brought a tearing sound and a whiff of smoke as the match burst to life. For a moment, in the initial spark of flame, she thought she saw a figure in the darkness. She tilted the match down, letting the flame crawl up the body. The flickering light revealed the tunnel again in short, staccato detail. The mud, the rocks, the solid stones around her. She could even discern a corner of the spray-painted orange star at the very edge of the firelight. But that was it, thankfully. No little girl, no terrifying ghost the others had warned her about. She looked over her shoulder and shrugged. Nothing. She smiled, turned back, and there it was. Or rather, there she was, standing now between Dia and the tunnel entrance. Dia froze, her smile straightened. She felt the blood drain from her face. All words, all sounds choked in her throat. She could do nothing but stare. The girl was standing where the shadow had been earlier, but the shadow now had a face. Charred in parts, burned and disfigured, crowned by tufts of tangled yellow hair, wet, dead eyes reflecting the light. Her clothing, a muddied mess of scorched and shredded fabric, billowed softly in the wind. Dia was too terrified to move, to speak, to even breathe. Finally, she blinked, and the girl was now right in front of her. There was an acrid scent of smoke and blood. The girl's eyes locked with Dia's, and her face contorted, her chest heaved. Her lipless mouth dropped open, and a blast of icy air came from nowhere and extinguished the flame. The darkness collapsed around her, and a horrible, anguished scream filled the tunnel. All Dia could do was scream in return. Now, I should say... This tale is a little more dramatic than the classic narrative, but the actual ritual prescribed for the screaming tunnel is essentially the same. The victim, a participant, must go at midnight, stand alone at the center of the tunnel, and light a single wooden match. Then, if the legend is to be believed, no matter how strong the flame, the match will suddenly be blown out. Moments later, if you listen closely enough, You may be able to hear a distant scream, they say, said to belong to the little girl who died inside the tunnel. Now, the legend isn't always so specific. Sometimes the time of day matters, sometimes not. Sometimes it's three in the morning or 3.33. Sometimes the use of a match is emphasized. Sometimes a lighter is perfectly fine. It all depends on who's telling the story. There's evidence that this ritual has been performed by thrill-seeking teens since at least the 1970s, and, like a lot of urban legends, this one seems to have gotten a little inflated over time, turning what was a subtle spooky mystery into an occasional all-out horror show. What was once a distant echo of a scream that you might hear if you only listened hard enough is now more often an unmistakable and blood-curdling shriek, Now, that's scary enough, but what if you could actually see the ghost? Now that would be really exciting. And so, this story has developed even further in some tellings, becoming more like the one I just shared. Online articles about the Screaming Tunnel often mention stories about the unlucky few who have seen the little girl with their own eyes. There are other retellings that push this mythology even further claiming that the ghostly little girl will follow you home and haunt you forever. That's one of the things I love most about urban legends like this one. They shift and transform over time, with each new generation making it their own, upping the ante, and turning up the terror. And it doesn't stop there. Just as the stories of the experiences have changed, so too has the legend behind it all. Once Long Ago a girl lived with her family on a farm a little ways south of Lake Ontario. Their house sat on a little hill above a drainage tunnel. In the spring, when the winter snows finally melted, the runoff would fill the tunnel and their farm would be kept safe from the flood. In the summer, when it was drier, the girls' family, along with the others who lived nearby, would routinely walk through the tunnel on their way to town. It was safer and cooler than trying to cross the busy railroad tracks above. One warm evening, tragedy struck. Finding it much too hot inside the farmhouse, the girl decided it would be cooler to sleep in the barn. Just before midnight, a fire broke out, and the girl woke to find her surroundings completely engulfed in flames. The thick black smoke choked her lungs, and the fire charred her skin as she crawled along the burning floor and burst through the door, screaming. Clothing ablaze, the little girl ran down the hill, desperately hoping that the muddy water inside the tunnel could save her. But she was too late. Overcome by the fire, suffering from severe burns across most of her body, the girl collapsed and died at the center of the tunnel, where, some say, her tortured and confused ghost remains to this day. Go there at midnight, they say. Stand in the center and light a wooden match. The tormented spirit, terrified by the flame, will quickly blow it out, and the faint sound of her dying screams will echo all around you. That is the basic structure of the legend, but there are a few variations that go into more detail about the fire. And though it's impossible to know the order of the origin for these different versions, some research suggests that the most popular story changed with the times as it passed from generation to generation. Based on the different versions I've managed to find in print and online, as well as either the copyright date of the publication or the age of the storyteller, the following is a very general overview of the likely natural progression of the legend. The tale of the little girl in the screaming tunnel seems to start off as a random tragedy. She was sleeping inside the barn, and in a tragic twist of fate, a spontaneous fire broke out. Now, this seems to be the standard tale dating back to the 1970s or even earlier. But eventually, the narrative shifts to become even more tragic and, possibly, to reflect the anxiety brought on by the recession of the early 1980s. Suddenly, the family was struggling financially. They couldn't pay their mortgage, and the bank was going to repossess the farm. Unwilling to go quietly and let the greedy bankers take his home, the father decided to torch his fields and burn his barn the night before the repossession. Thinking that his family was safe at home, he lit a wooden match and set fire to his barn, not realizing that his daughter was asleep inside. Thus, it seems that in the early 80s, the cause of the girl's death changed from pure bad luck to classic deadly sin. The bank's greed and the father's pride led to her tragic end. A few years later, the story seems to change once again. This time, perhaps now in the late 80s, corresponding with a peak in divorce rates, the father is still guilty of causing his daughter's death, but his charge has changed from negligence to homicide. Now he's an abusive drunk, about to lose his farm and his family, not to an economic recession, but by way of a messy divorce. In a fit of drunken fury, he beats his wife and chases his daughter out of the farmhouse and into the tunnel. Finding her collapse at the center, weeping and begging for her life, he ignores her desperate pleas, douses her with either alcohol or gasoline, and sets her ablaze. What was, a decade earlier, a tragic accident, is now murder. By the early 1990s, the story seems to have transformed one more time. Now, the story serves as a cautionary tale about stranger danger, a new societal anxiety that was sweeping North America at the time. Suddenly, the father is no longer the murderer. That role belongs now to a stranger, of course, an outsider. More specifically, a homeless drifter, predator, and killer. Now, again, there is no official record of the legend of the Screaming Tunnel. We can't track these stories on a timeline but the various versions do seem to reliably change with the age of the storyteller and the date of the publication. The blame for the girl's death shifts from a stroke of fate to the ills of society to the destruction of the family, and finally, to the dangerous other who invades our community and preys on our children. But all of this begs the question, is there any truth to it? Did a little girl really die in the screaming tunnel? Well, probably not. Though everyone knows the basic story, no one has been able to find any evidence. Apparently, some old foundations can still be found near the far side of the tunnel, which suggests that people did live there at one time or another. But that doesn't mean much. Unlike other myths and legends, The story of the Screaming Tunnel makes no mention of a family name, and there are no specific details regarding where the girl's home might have been. There's not even a rough year for when the fire supposedly occurred. The stories range from the 1800s, long before the tunnel was built, to the 1940s. And there are no supporting records or newspaper articles about a tragic barn fire in the area or a grisly murder occurring in the tunnel. Okay, fine, there's no clear evidence that a ghostly girl has any reason to haunt the tunnel, but it must be known as the Screaming Tunnel for a reason. Well, there is one other, perhaps more believable story about the tunnel and its name, but it doesn't involve the fiery death of a little girl. According to some storytellers in the area, an unhappy couple once lived nearby, and they fought constantly. Most evenings, they say, When the woman had had enough, she would walk to the tunnel, go to its center, and scream at the top of her lungs, letting out all of her frustration, anger, and pain. The screams were so loud and such a common occurrence that the locals began calling it the Screaming Tunnel. They say the legend of the fire and the little girl came later, inspired by the tunnel's name, and long after the couple and their troubles were mostly forgotten. Today, the Screaming Tunnel is more popular than ever. It even has its own pin on Google Maps. At the time of this writing, it has an average rating of 4.3 stars, with a peak visitation time of Sunday evenings, just after dark. Ghost tours visit regularly, as do locals, legend trippers, and starry-eyed YouTubers with a pack of matches in one hand and an expensive camera in the other. Even the local Sheraton Hotel has written a blog entry about it. The screaming tunnel's continuing role as the local rite of passage proves that as long as there are people who want to scare the wits out of themselves and each other, as long as we continue to wonder about dark places and the great unknown, it and places like it will always exist. It doesn't matter if it's the wind rather than a ghost that blows out our match, or if we ever solve the mystery behind the legend. Our continued belief and participation in the ritual is our way of sharing in our collective stories and our culture. Places like the Screaming Tunnel help us learn about our community and learn about ourselves. And yes, they also help us laugh at our friends when we let out a blood-curdling scream at the same moment that their match goes out. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember, the next time you visit a tourist destination like Niagara Falls, try straying off the beaten path for a bit. You never know what legends you might find. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. Sound design and mixing is by Ryan Clark. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can support me through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.